0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this privilege that we have each Sunday to gather together as your people, for indeed a privilege it is. Uh, Father, it's one that in some ways I believe we all feel <clears throat> might someday slip away. And so we lift our nation in this time uh, <clears throat> In history and ask father that you have mercy upon us that you bring revival to our land um, and to the hearts of, of many who are wandering in darkness with no light For this hour, Father, we lift it to you. We ask, Lord, that you would be light to us and that you, your truth would be very clear um, and that you, you might use it both to sanctify and encourage us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, from that prayer, you can kind of tell where my lesson has taken me. Um, anyway, um, let's start with a few statistics. This is f- from Gallup. Um, and um, I mean, you've got some amazing stuff out there, to be honest with you. But to, for the question of how important would you say religion is in your own life? Uh, very important, fairly important, or not very important. This chart graphs the number of people who said very important. Okay, and it starts in uh, yeah, it starts in 1993, and comes up almost to the present here. And if you will notice, there has been a nine percent drop over that thirty year period in the number of people in america who feel like religion is very important we have gone from in excess of fifty percent to under fifty percent of the people in our nation polled by Gallup who believe that religion is important is that a tipping point in our culture uh, to the question, do you happen to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? They've been asking this question a long time. This chart goes all the way back to 1938. And you'll notice that it has, re- has re- it remained very steady. It took a jump immediately after World War II. But uh, it, anyway, it remained rather steady around 73% for decades until about 1974 or 5, at which point it's begun a steady decline and has fallen off by 23 percent. From a demographic standpoint, it's even worse. Um, To the question about membership, traditionalists born in 1945 or before. I want to ask how many of you fall in that category. Uh, And at the turn of the century, 77% were attending church. As of 2018, it had dropped to 68%. For baby boomers, they they were... 10% less of them attended the church and 10% less in 2018. But look at millennials. 42% attend church. Would you say these statistics argue that, what, what would you say these statistics are saying? It would be any number of things, right? And statistics can be interpreted to say anything you want them to say, almost. And and I don't want to do that. But what does it say about the effectiveness of evangelism, Christian evangelism in the United States? Well, Well... I think, yeah, there, there is, a, I mean, in general, term, and also, in terms of, in terms of conversion, okay, it's, it's not our evangelism that determines conversion anyway, is it? It is the Spirit of God that determines the conversion of a heart and the, and the, and the turning of a mind. But, nevertheless, these are not promising numbers, are they? And they should at least cause us to at least take a look at what we are doing, how we are presenting the gospel, and ask ourselves about our responsibilities in God's work to bring people into his kingdom. Tom, you had something you wanted to say? Okay, if God is returning soon, that would be the case, that, and that, that is the case, I, I, I will grant that. But if this is not God's time to come, then, then it says something different about what's fixing, but it does still nevertheless say something about what is fixing to happen to our country, and what is fixing to happen to people of faith in this country. Actually, it's cool. it says that either way. I mean, if, if in fact, this is the, the, the pre... pre uh, what's the word I want? The first steps towards the end of history as we understand it. Or it's not. Regardless of that, these statistics say something very dire for the church in America. Right? Right? if they don't turn around somehow. Okay, in, um, in, in, you know, and in some of the, the chatter, and if we have time and can get to it, we'll look at one, an example. In some of the chatter, these t- the, 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 the attitudes are turning in such a way that it's going to become not just ambivalent, to Christianity, our culture is not; it's going to cease to be ambivalent and become, as Paul says, about the Christ, the unbeliever for to God, openly hostile. Okay. All right. So, I think all of this is just to just to kind of set the stage. Is this conversation that we're having about how to present the Gospel to an unbeliever, and and in particular unbelievers who are intellectually hostile to the Word of God, is this conversation important or not? And I think I would argue it's very important. It's very important to us. Okay, so let's look at the cultural landscape and this is now from the, we're going to, I'm taking this directly from the video that we saw last week. Um, When he started out, he talked about evolution. Uh, Evolution or materialism. When we say materialism, what are we talking about? Okay. The physical world the material that's in the, that in the universe that we see, perceive, that's all that is, okay? is, what is meant by materialism, alright? That's all that is. There is no God, there is no other forces, there is strictly the material that exists in the universe and now we need to explain how it's come to be what we understand it to be, okay? And with that as your begin- fundamental premise, basically, what's our best answer? Evolution, right? Okay. He does, it's interesting that he really doesn't talk much about the survival of the fittest, but what he does t- talk, draw from evolution is that re- evolution is constant change. In order, I mean, basically the theory of evolution says that everything is always changing okay it resists ability and it promotes change and the fact that evolution has basically informs virtually every academic discipline there is all right do we understand what do, do and do you understand what that what we mean by that in the realm of in the realm of humanities okay evolution the theory of evolution and how evolution works it informs how they understand society how they understand literature how they how we understand anything okay evolution is the theory that informs that, okay he didn't uh, and we can see a dramatic effect of that he talks about deconstructionism okay deconstructionism is the principle of modern language analysis which asserts that language refers only to itself rather than to any external reality and therefore no written text communicates any set of meaning or conveys any reliable or coherent message (coughs) I mean, what is that? Yes, yes David. Is that true? Huh? Is that true? <laughs> I asked Aletha uh, about how, how prevalent was this. Now, in re- keeping in mind, too, that, that Dr. Bauman, Bonson is t- speaking back in 1992 or 3 the, in, on, these, on these slides. So deconstructionism, I believe, is just beginning to become popular in academic circles. In his day, but I ask Aletha, who who basically attended WT a, what, a decade later, yeah, and uh, she said, "Man, it was the hot topic at WT." Okay, and pretty much, it it basically was used to teach everything in her classes. Now, by the time she got to Warwick in England, yes, deconstructionism was still being taught, but it was just simply being taught as one of the many different ways one can approach literature. All right? But this is a natural progression. This is a natural evolution, okay, of the thought process in a world... That is nothing but material. It devolves to nihilism because that's what this is. No meaning whatsoever. Okay? Except whatever meaning you as a subject wish to impose upon the text. <coughs> that last statement this constitutes a direct challenge to the truthfulness and applicability of the bible does everybody see that? okay and then he talked about hidden opposition and he gave some examples one was selective considerations those in control determine what is suitable for consumption and what is not neutral Neutrality, neutral tolerance. The call to toleration is simply the application of neutral, the neutrality principle to moral issues. Okay, so, so he's saying that tolerance, and what is tolerance? Tolerance basically, I think, briefly said is that since we really can't establish what is true and what isn't true, we must, be t- we must be accepting of all different ideas. If we bring this into the realm of religion, we can't really say for sure that Christianity is true. I mean, how can you say... It's, I mean, the Islam, it claims to be true. It, cl- it makes the same kind of truth claims that Christianity does. How do you know the difference? Okay? You can't. Okay? So... You must be tolerant of all. We must be accepting of all. We must be able to understand and, and make room for all ideas, right? So, but, but tolerance becomes a moral question. When we say we're going to be accepting of all ideas, I mean, we get confronted... I mean, we are... We are being slammed in the face with that by the LGBTQ community today, are we not? I mean, just just bowled over by them, are we not? By such a small percentage of our culture in terms of numbers, and they dominate the conversation because we must be tolerant. Censorship claims. Man, this was an interesting one. He talks about how in academic libraries, academic libraries seek to be, um, you know, as diverse as possible. But if you have a materialistic mindset informing your choices, I mean, you can't put every single book in your in your stacks as a librarian. You just can't. Okay. And, in fact, if you did, you would so dilute the value of your library that, you know, that you'd get fired. Okay? So you've got to make decisions. You've got to filter all the stuff that comes in. Okay? And his point is, is that there is no neutrality in this filtering. Everybody has, has a set of rules that they apply when making making determinations of what goes in and what goes out. And that is definitely going to mean that the library is not neutral. Okay, neutrality. Let's go back to the definition. What is neutrality? It is the state of not supporting or helping either side in a conflict, disagreement, etc. Impartiality. During the war, Switzerland maintained its neutrality. Okay, as an example. So some uh, similar words are impartiality, lack of bias. Lack of prejudice, objectivity, open-mindedness, disinterestedness, even-handedness, fairness, fair-mindedness, detachment, non-alignment, non-participation, non-involvement. Okay, fair-mindedness, even-handedness, lack of prejudice, objectivity. Those are all very positive words, aren't they? Things we should aspire to okay, in our dealings with one another. Yes? The opposite is partiality or bias, okay, participation and taking sides. Okay. The absence of decided views, expression, or strong feeling, okay? So that's the definition of neutrality. So you understand why people want to argue because, I mean, the words, the synonyms anyway, are Pretty positive synonyms, pretty positive ideas. All right, neutrality. Now then, here are some quotes over the, from, famous, from various famous people that touch on the notion of being neutral. David Hume. Nothing can be more unphilosophical than to be positive or dogmatical, dogmatical on any subject. Say what? It sounds pretty dogmatic. <laughs> yes, it does sound pretty dogmatic. sounds very dogmatic. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's good. That's good. Okay. William, William Hazlitt. He, he died in 1830. The great difficulty in philosophy is to come to every question with a mind fresh and unshackled by its former theories. C.C. Colton, who died in 1832. So, I mean, you can see that the assault on on truth and and, uh, the, you know, the, the assault on the underpinnings of the Christian worldview go a long way back. Hundreds of years. Doubt is the vestibule which all must pass before they can enter into the temple of wisdom. Doubt is the vestibule, is the doorway, through which everyone must pass in order to enter the temple of wisdom. How well do you think he'd read his Bible? William Seward, The circumstances of the world are so variable that an irrevocable purpose or opinion is almost synonymous with a foolish one. <laughs> They're almost, it's almost blasphemous, isn't it? <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was he? Court he, was, he was the Supreme Court Justice, that's right. To have doubted one's first principles is the mark of a civilized man. Alfred North Whitehead, in philosophical discussion, the merest hint of dogmatic certainty as to, as to finality of statement is an exhibition of folly. Bertrand Russell. In all affairs, it's a healthy thing now and then to hang a question mark on the things you have long taken for granted. William Meisner, I respect faith, but doubt is what gets you in education. Does he have faith in that statement? I'm sorry? Does he have faith in that statement? Does he have faith in that statement? <laughs> Uh, Well, I I guess he does. I guess he does. He's kind of betting the farm on it, isn't he? Alan Bloom. The most important function of the university in an age of reason is to protect reason from itself by being the model of truly openness. Okay. So the assault... On truth, which is what I believe these statements are, has, been a, has a long and illustrious history, I guess we could say. This is just a smattering. But, but you know, these, these are people who have been, through, the, through, through history, highly respected. Okay? All right. Okay, so, what is the first thing that we need to decide in this conversation? And, 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 and there's no point in having this conversation unless we can settle the question. And what is that question? Is the Word of God true? True. Because if you can't say with 100% certainty that it is, then you just as well cross onto the other side of the fence and start doubting. All right? That is the fundamental question for us. But if we can answer that question, yes, yes the Word of God is true, undoubtedly, unequivocally, then we have something to stand upon. What is it? That's what we need to learn. That's what we need to develop. And, and we need to develop assurance in that belief. Okay? So, yes, sir. Okay. That was the question that Adam and Eve faced. What voice are you going to listen to? Uh, which I think is is um, I, I would almost argue is 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 the, is asking the same question. Similar. It's a very similar, similar question. Okay, so Dennis's question is or statement is is he thinks there's a statement perhaps that comes a question that comes before this. And that is the question, who are we going to listen to? All right? But I think basically it comes down to, we want to listen to whoever is telling us the truth. Right? And that becomes, I guess, and who are, who are the sources of truth? I well, a lot of people want to listen to what they want to listen to. A lot of people want to listen to what they, well, there is that. Yes. And we're not necessarily interested in truth. We're more interested in what we want to do. It makes me feel right? All right that's right. And and whether it's true or not that may not that really might not be a question. Okay. All right. All right, but as a Christian, okay? Why is so the truth so important to us? Well, for no other reason Jesus prayed to the Father, "Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the truth is the means by which God sanctifies his people. Okay, so Dennis makes the point, the question, who are we going to listen to? And that was the question, that was the problem in the Garden of Eden, is his point. Adam and Eve were confronted with the question, who are you going to listen to? are you gonna listen to your creator are you gonna listen to creation they made a bad choice they made a catastrophic choice alright so I wanna go back to what we've already studied and tie in what we've studied in the past to what we're studying today okay so this you all recognize this, right? Okay. We went we 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 kind of hammered this for in 2019, I think. Okay. All right. The perspectival view of of the god of god, okay, by John Frank. All right. And he, in the question of God's knowledge, all right, he makes this point. There there is a normative, a situational and an existential aspect to God's knowledge. In, in the normative sense, God's word is his acts. Okay? In the beginning, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Alright? In terms of the situational, or in his in his, his realm of control, there is his laws. And those laws encompass the universe itself. We speak of what? The laws of physics, the laws of of chemistry, the laws of, of biology. We also have His law in Scripture. And finally, there's the existential aspect of His Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Scripture presents the Holy Spirit as the breath of God that breathes out His speech. Okay? God's speech. One big, and this is one biblical picture of the Trinity that Frame presents us with. The Father speaks, the Son is the word that He speaks, and the Spirit, the breath that carries the speech to the word, to the hearer. God's speech has other divine attributes it is righteous, it is faithful, it's wonderful it is true, it is eternal, it is all-powerful, and it is perfect, okay? Just remind us that, that these are things that we've already studied, that we've already looked at about truth, okay, or God's Word, all right? God's Word is an object of worship. God's Word is God. God. Therefore, it is His self-expression in the very highest sense. In the beginning, in John 1.1, 1, 1, explicitly alludes to Genesis 1 and, and to the creation narrative. By implication, all words by which God decrees, creates, provides, judges, and saves are divine. All of God's words are true. His word is truth. Uh, he's, and, 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 and the problem that you have is, is that the word of God is self-attesting, and in a certain sense, you know, in, in the rules of logic, it's a circular argument, OK? I think that, that therefore, Dennis is right when he says, "Really, your fundamental question is, who are you going to listen to?" OK? Truth is the internal standard that governs God's speech. Okay, and then um, Barnack makes several points about truth. Truth is metaphysical. That is, truth talks about the how things should be are. I'm mean, not should be. Truth speaks to how things are. All right, the state of being of things. From that we get that it is logical. it is a truth is, is it's, a, it's epistemological or propositional that is it is it, it's a, it's a function of knowing and it makes statements about how things about the metaphysical truth, the metaphysics that it, it is speaking of and it is a property of language and it refers to language that rightly represents reality that- ex- that expressed the way something really is. Okay, what is that a direct contradiction to? Deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. It is a, a direct contradiction to deconstruction. It lays claim. When we speak of God's truth, we are laying claim to the fact that because God made language and God created the world, there is a fundamental relationship that what is said is what is. All right? That's what these two points are making. That language can say... Something true about what is. And in today's culture, that's anathema. And truth is also ethical. Truth makes a demand. It, 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 It comes with duty. Basically actions living that flows out of the first two types God calls us to live the truth. All right? Okay, and as I pointed out from as I just as I pointed out earlier, truth is what sanctifies us. We live in a world of sin and deception, we dwell in bodies that are tied to that world, whose flesh yearns for and seeks darkness, okay, and autonomy, frankly, is what it seeks, okay. How are we going to become people who glorify their God? By learning what is deceiving and learning what is true, rejecting the one and embracing the other. Right? Okay. John Frame is kind of to sum up what he said. To say that God has all knowledge and wisdom and to say that he is a fully rational mind is to say that all of his speech to himself and to the world has the quality of truth. So answer the question, who are you going to listen to? Get it resolved. And if the answer is you're going to listen to God, Okay, then basically you're going to have to say what God said is true. It has a demand on me, and I must, to the best of my ability, obey. Right? Okay, so neutrality. What was Dr. Bronson's position on the matter? He had two things. What were they? You can't answer. You be quiet. They aren't, aren't, right? They, the unbelievers, aren't. And you, the believer, shouldn't be. Okay? Very good, David. All right. And with that, now I need to get my notes out because... All right. First of all, the unbeliever is not neutral. Despite their loud and frequent claims to the contrary, unbelievers do not practice neutrality in approaching the question of God's existence. In fact, they do not approach any issue neutrally. Any claim that... Okay, so let's move on. So the unbelieving mind, the Bible makes it clear believers are not neutral but are hostile to God. In Ephesians 4, 17 to 18, Paul says, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord. I, I, he is saying this, but what does he say? I say, with the Lord. I mean, and one of the things I hopefully y'all remember me getting like wound up when I talked about Lordship when we were doing frame. God is the Lord. It's not a trivial statement. It is a life-altering statement. Okay. And it is why we should listen to God, frankly. All right. With the Lord. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And what is he, when he speaks of Gentiles, what is he speaking of? He's basically speaking of non-believers here, right? Because he's actually writing to Gentiles, frankly. All right. Also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. Okay. I mean, is that a neutral statement about... I mean, is is Paul presenting neutral people here? No. Not at all. (coughs) So I mean, and and so Bonson asks if, if this is the case, if this is the state of an unbeliever who is asking you to be neutral, why would why why would you even allow them that? Okay, I think is his point, and that and that is and that is what he's trying to get us to. We are we are, the, the notion of being neutral has a a, a, a logic to it. That is hard to resist, okay? Because it's 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 a notion that, you know, I don't know. It just seems fair, right? Okay, but what's the problem? If we're neutral on any subject, in the end, after the subject has been all the, all the ideas have been laid out, and we've been as impartial as, we, as, as possible. Who is going to make the call? And who is going to decide what is right and what is wrong? And neutrality calls us to answer that question the same way Adam and Eve Answered the question. In Ephesians, continuing in Ephesians, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been, which, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Remember those statements from those philosophers. Okay? He said, being firm in your belief is one of them. I don't remember which one it was, but he said, being firm, paraphrasing him, firmness in belief is nothing short of folly. Paul says, the things of the spirit of God are folly to the unbeliever and they are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual pers- person judges all things, but he himself but is he himself to be judged by no one? For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ alright in Colossians 121 speaking to the, this is Paul again speaking to the Colossians he said and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and who have and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want you to think about that statement of which I, Paul, became a minister. Just to affirm, okay, in an existential way, the truth of what is going on here. Remember, Paul was a man who was bent 100%, 100% committed to the eradication of the Jews who had joined the way. And he was on a horse riding to Damascus to arrest people who were beginning a small church in, in Damascus. He had letters of authority from from the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest anyone in the synagogue who, uh, who basically affirmed the way. Okay? And we know Paul, from what Paul was afterwards, that when Paul gets a hold of something, Paul don't let it go, right? He's like a, he's, he's like a pit bulldog with his jaws locked down on something that man is a man on a mission and nobody and nothing is going to stop him it never did except jesus and on that road that man did a complete 180 it completely changed his life and it changed the church of god His life has changed every one of our lives. And in that moment, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul saw the truth. And his life was forever changed because of it. Um, simply put, the mind is not neutral. Jesus said, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other." Jesus also said, "He who is against who, he who is not with me is against me." Paul in Romans 1 for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because of which because, because that which can be is known about god is evident within them for god made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his internal. Eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, in our culture, they have turned that table on us, okay? They, but, but again, you, I mean, you know, and, and it, it's, it's amazing to me how applicable what Paul is saying in the first century is today, okay? They profess to be wise. They tell us that we are fools, Okay? And yet, their foolish hearts are darkened. They cannot see. They cannot see. Any apologetic method that does not recognize this hostility is. Okay, is. And, <laughs> sorry. Any apologetic method that does not recognize the hostility of the fallen mind is not only gravely mistaken, but it is resisting the teaching of the, very, of the very scripture which its apologetics should be defending. And we are urged to recognize the reality of non-neutrality in the actual world. OK? It is a myth. All right. I just said it is a myth. Neutrality, just basically, I'm just making the statement that neutrality is is, it's 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 a myth. No one's neutral, okay. When we say we shouldn't be, we're not. Point point blank, we're not. Well what but but what Bonson is saying is don't even act like you don't even try to act like you are own it i am not neutral okay yes Tom. I was going to say if going in neutral and testing everything and uh, only accepting what can be proven yeah but that is not a neutral statement or that is not a neutral that is not a neutral starting point is it Right. And so, but the, but the, but the, and, and, and that is true. And that, and they will hold to that. And basically, you know, you're, you're, that, uh, to, to a person who does, who is, who, who God does not open his eyes, he will not, he will not let go of that. He will not. But our position is not to, is not to allow them to make us start there. We are not going to start there. Not, uh, yeah, so, so, so you can, uh, and, and we're going to see this, and this is coming, and this is not my part of my, my lesson right now. My lesson right now is simply to w- w- get us all convinced of two things, and, and I'm going to go with, with Dennis instead of my statement. Settle the question, who are you going to listen to? Settle that question, okay? Okay. Because if you can't settle that question, then you're going to be wavering. I mean, the arguments the arguments are persuasive. You know. And 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 when you're done, in some cases, if you when, when when we're done listening to the arguments, we think, man, I think that guy won. I, don't, I mean, you know, it just he. Who are you going to listen to? You got to settle that question. Okay. And number two, recognition that the problem here that we're dealing with is not logic. It's not facts. Okay? It is hostility to God. That's the problem. Okay? And only God is going to change that hostility. But we... God calls us to be faithful to Him to give an answer for the hope that is within us. So, who are you going to listen to? Grab hold of that hope and learn to give a faithful answer for that hope. That's the point of my message today. All right? In in future lessons, we're going to talk. Okay, so let me let me run through this. So the unbelieving mind denies reality, and that you know that's the thing. When it all comes down to it, the scientific method ends up with unanswered questions. It can't explain things like sin. All right. It 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 can't explain the need for justice in every man materialism can't answer those questions those 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 you know almost yes okay so anyway it can't and 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 that is part of the equation to try to get get folks to see yeah you're being neutral but when you're done you got things you can't answer The Christian worldview provides answers for those things. You don't like the answers. I don't like some of the answers, to be quite frank with you. I mean, you know, my flesh doesn't like it. You know, I I really would like to be able to be the arbitrator of all that is true in my life. I really would. I would like that. What a terrible guy I would be if I was able to do that. Okay? Basically, they deny reality. You know, they have no place for God in the creation of things. They have no place for God in terms of who he is and what he demands, what the demands he places on life. They have no notion that God governs the universe. But if we're going to believe the Lord, then we're going to know that, in fact, that is what is happening. God governs His universe because God is the Lord. Okay, y'all remember that? (laughs) Okay, you as a believer shouldn't be. As Christians, we understand that sin makes neutrality impossible, and therefore we must take every thought captive to Christ. We are commanded to fear God in order to positively gain knowledge. Okay, so back to some of those statements. It says, basically, doubt is the doorway to wisdom. The Bible says, no, sir. What does the Bible say? The fear of the Lord is the doorway to wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. If you don't start there, what does the Bible say you will become? The very thing that we are accused of being. The Bible says you will become a fool. And we are commend, command. that's supposed to be commanded, not commended. We are commanded to positively bow in submission to the Lord in all things. We take our minds captive to Christ. It is the key. It is the key to your eternal well-being, to my eternal well-being. And it is the key to our ability to bring glory to God when we give an, give an account for the hope that is within us.